The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Good afternoon, everyone, and I'm so honored and delighted to introduce you to two of my colleagues, whom you have probably met by teleconference multiple times over the past several years. Alyssa Klein, uh, who's been with the firm well over 10 years, at least a decade, and similarly, Kevin Andrews, who's also been with the firm for over a decade. Two brilliant, smart attorneys who do a lot of work with USCIS, FDNS site visits and investigations, which is the topic for this afternoon. So what are we going to discuss? We are going to talk about the latest trends and some practical tips for when the government agencies contact the, you as an employer, as a company, or the work site of your foreign national employees. Obviously, the best thing for the employer or company to do is to make sure that all your paperwork is correct, that you have been compliant, ideally before any type of representative from one of these federal government agencies shows up and knocks on your company's door. And so what are the agencies? As many of you are aware, it's either FDNS, Fraud Detection and National Security, which is part of USCIS, originally formed back in 2004. We're also seeing uh, in the news reports of FDNS data system called FDNS-DS, uh, which is technologically managing information on everyone in the immigration system. And I know Alyssa is going to talk a little bit more about that towards the very end of our discussion. You, of course, have, besides FDNS, you have the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, and we have the U.S. Department of Labor, or DOL. Uh, the ICE, ICE is what sends out the I-9 investigation to ensure that your employees are employer-compliant and work-authorized. Uh, they can issue a notice of inspection. It's usually delivered by certified mail. Similarly, you have the U.S. Department of Labor, which will send notices by mail. With FDNS, it's a different story. And again, Alyssa is going to talk about that towards the end. So with that, let me jump to you, Kevin, if I can. So what are these agencies primarily trying to target or look for from the employer or employee? Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So, yeah, th there are several agencies involved. As you mentioned, FDNS, ICE, Department of Labor, they all have a different focus. And um, while they all have a different focus, they all also have a what they call a memorandum of understanding between them to share the information. You know, if they think one of the other investigation agencies would be interested in some information that they come across. So like, you know, the agencies will investigate uh, H1 and L1 compliance with the terms and conditions of employment, uh, I-9 compliance, like you mentioned. And uh, as you said, there, there's a breakdown in primary responsibility. ICE tends to be focused on those I-9s. Department of Labor tends to be focused on the public access files. And FDNS, Fraud Detection National Security, that you were talking about, is really just investigating compliance with the, the using, you know, the H and the L petitions 
And, you know, I think our, our focus for discussion today is looking at those FDNS site visits, those cyber visits, and, um, you know, also how it relates to the DOL investigations. There's definitely a sharing mechanism between those two. Thank you so much, Kevin. We appreciate that insight. So, Alyssa, if we can jump to you next. So, what kind of compliance review and investigations are H-1B and L-1 employers being subjected to? Sure, Sheila. Thank you. So, with respect to FDNS, they, they have many functions. Among them, uh, they're responsible for verifying that companies, as Kevin said, are being compliant with their non-immigrant cases, uh, especially H-1B petitions and to a lesser degree L-1 petitions. Um, and there are a number of different types of assessments or reviews that they can perform on these cases. One example is performance of fraud assessments, where FDNS officers engage in fraud assessments, including benefit fraud and compliance assessments, to determine the types and volumes of fraud in certain immigration benefit programs. There's also compliance reviews, which are systematic reviews of certain types of applications or petitions to ensure the integrity of the immigration benefit system. And then we also have targeted site visits, where they, uh, they are conducting inquiries into cases where there's a suspicion of, of fraud. Uh, and then also there are random targeted site visits, specifically within the H-1B program, uh, where there's a special focus on H-1B dependent employers and uh, or employers that have H-1B workers placed at a third party. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, I wanted to ask so, you about mm -hmm. that for the just mm -hmm. the the difference between the benefit fraud and compliance assessments versus like targeted, but like is that also random the those fraud assessments or is that you know like based so, on some information? The the fraud assessments um, would be targeted, meaning that if mm -hmm. if USCIS suspects that there's fraud they would have that site visit carried out for that purpose versus the targeted targeted random, which is that pool of dependent and off-site workers. And then you have, again, they're just random site visits as well. And FDNS doesn't necessarily always know uh, why that site visit is being requested, or at least the Wonderful. officer doing the investigation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Alyssa. Good question, Kevin. Uh, so the next question that we generally are asked is what are the common issues that we see with the site visits? So there's primarily four main issues that we see. Uh, obviously, first is checking on H-1B petitions. This has been occurring, as most of you know, for a few years. But visits on L-1 non-immigrants, particularly L-1A cases, has been occurring more frequently in the past year or two last past few years, more recently. Second, they are looking to check uh, the employee, whether in H or L1, whether the employee is actually doing the work as described on the H1B or L1 petition. Third, uh, these generally occur after the approval of the petition. And so they're not, they are currently not a pre-adjudication requirement. Most of these investigations are being done after approval. But the FDNS fourth is also can, is allowed to conduct a pre-adjudication site visit, particularly with respect to H-1 petitions, including after the issuance of an RFE or even after the RFE has been responded to, just for them to make sure that everything is in order and as, uh, you know, attested to by the employer. Remember, as we've often and we've always pointed out, all documents are signed by the employer 
under penalty of perjury, which is a federal criminal offense. So it's very serious matter for you as an employer or your HR person who's signing the documents. So next, let's uh, jump again to Kevin. Kevin, so in terms of details, how are these investigations usually carried out? So uh, thanks, Sheila. So with, with the FDNS investigation, um, you know, the FDNS officer is going to initiate contact with uh, the employer and or the employee. Now, before the pandemic, this contact, you know, might have been done in person, visiting to the, uh, to the work site, you know, for those who are working offsite at a client location, you know, might be visiting at that location to confirm the terms and conditions of employment are being met. Um, certainly after uh, the pandemic has started, most of that kind of communication is being done through phone and email uh, communication, sending out lists of uh, information that they ask for. Uh, as I said, FDNS, they're, they're going to cover their bases. If there's a client involved, they're going to be communicating with the employee, with the employer, and, and also maybe even following up with the client um, if that work is uh, physically being done at the client uh, work location. The, the, the questions, you know, and, and they'll list out several questions in the emails these days are, I mean, it's almost kind of like an RFE or a synopsis of the petition, you know, work location, the salary, job duties, uh, asking about how uh, the work is supervised. So th th that's the kind of information that's solicited from the FDNS to the employer, to the employee, to the client. And, um, you know, the emails going to the employers could request additional information about the company that doesn't seem even to be directly related to the case. That could be an indication that, you know, the investigation is part of something larger than just this one H-1 filing, but maybe something more uh, to the company or more broadly. Thank you, Kevin. So, Alyssa, I know that you are the supervising attorney at the firm that primarily handles the team and the department does, that does FDNS and site inspections and compliance and all of that. So, with respect to the employers, companies, businesses, employees, what is the best way for the employer to handle these types of site visits or follow-up verification by any of these three different federal agencies? Sure. So the first thing to, to understand is that the Administrative Site Visit Verification Program, or ASVVP, that we're discussing that FDNS carries out, it technically is voluntary for the employer and the, and the employee to respond to, okay? However, it's also important to bear in mind that the employer is signing under the penalty of perjury on the Form I-129 that they do agree to provide relevant documents and information for, uh, to USCIS regarding the case, okay? So the result of non-participation would most likely be getting a notice of intent to revoke if the petition's already been approved, or if it's a pre-adjudication, pre then you could get a notice of intent to deny or potentially an RFE. Um, now, there's also another consideration for companies, which is that, you know, if they are not participating in the program, that they could potentially get flagged as well just for that purpose, okay? Um, if, the, if they don't respond during the FDNS site visit process and they do get a notice of intent to revoke or notice of intent to deny, they could always respond to USCIS with the relevant information at that time. Um, also, to keep in mind, if an employer or employee is approached by FDNS, they should uh, feel free to reach out to their immigration attorney on record 
for the specific case or forward FDNS's request to the immigration attorney to seek out assistance in responding to the request for information. Uh, normally, FDNS only provides a few days for responses, so it's a good idea to try and request additional time to respond. And this could be from the employer, the employee, or, or the attorney. Got it. Okay. So one of the questions we often get asked is, how should we ask for more time if the officer shows up in person at our office? So the answer always is, obviously, it is best to be prepared whether you're the employer or the employee. So as employers, you should make sure that the first point of contact at your company, at the company's headquarters, who it is, what information they will provide, or the employee's work location, that they understand who and what the FDNS is, what they do, and actually have a plan of action for when the officer shows up, arrives at the company door, knocks on the company, whatever, arrives at the front desk. I know with COVID-19, a lot of the meetings are not in person, but they could. They still sometimes land up in person or they send emails and phone calls as we talked about earlier. So ideally, the employer, the company, should consider having a designated point of contact to meet with the particular agent or officer, such as the HR manager, in-house attorney or counsel, or someone else who can actually speak intelligently on behalf of the employer or company. Again, as remember, Alyssa said participation is voluntary, but we know that there are consequences when, you know, if you as the employer say, great, it's voluntary, I'm not going to respond, then we may have to deal with certain other ramifications that Alyssa touched upon. And the second, uh, the other point is that employees also need to be aware and educated uh, that such visits are possible and the employer should have a protocol in place such as contact that the employee is required to contact the employer before attempting to answer the officer's questions or making sure that the employee understands what the officers are generally trying to verify, for example, work location, duty, salary, et cetera. I just wanted to mention about this. I think this is a resistance point that I, um, I have with a lot of employers that I speak to because I think a lot of the time the employers don't want their employees to have a perception that they're like, you know, one of these investigated companies. So they don't want to raise it and even mention that, hey, there could be this thing. And if it happens, please reach out to us. Um, like Alyssa said, a lot of these investigations are very random, so that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a, a problem when uh, one of these communications happen. But if the employee is not made aware from the employer that this could happen and we have a protocol for it, it, it you know, it, it could go sideways very quickly. So I, I agree that having that upfront conversation is actually more establishing more confidence than trying to ignore it. Exactly, and especially if they clarify that, look, this happens from time to time with every employer under the face of this earth, uh, under the sun. It's not targeted. We're not expecting. We're doing everything correctly. But if there's a random audit, if there's whatever, that you need to be mentally prepared, and this is the company's system and protocol to avoid exactly what we've talked about, which is the person providing information, saying something inadvertently that could really create far more complications to the employer. So next question for you, Kevin. Uh, what are the timelines for responding to FDNS's request for documentation and, inf uh, and information? 
Yeah, so unfortunately, this isn't as um, formalized as like a RFE deadline or, or thing. most correspondence with USCIS. The, the government, the FDNS officers seem to be mainly self-driven with their own um, timeframes for collecting the information, uh, for acting on the information even. Um, so, you know, we've seen situations where, you know, the officer will uh, follow up repeatedly, uh, but not give exact time frames for when the information is, is needed. Uh, we'd communicate back and forth and try to, you know, resolve that. But then even when they get the information, there's no clear deadline or time frame for when, you know, you, you get any uh, information, whether good or bad, about what's happened. You know, over the years, we've seen cases where, uh, an, uh, an RFE, a NOID, a NOR, usually a notice of intent to revoke because it's already an approved case, comes like six months, eight months, a year or more after the site visit. And, and um, so, so that part can really affect peace of mind with stuff like this because you don't know if it's okay or not after you complete the FDNS officer's request. Um, and, and maybe a lot of times no news is good news, unfortunately. Thank you, Kevin. So Alyssa, once the employer and the employee respond to the inquiry, what happens next? How do we know that everything has been successfully resolved? Is it open? Is there still a risk of the H1 or the L1 petition getting denied? What's the story on that? It's an excellent question. And Kevin uh, did touch on this just now. When you have a site visit following adjudication of a petition, it, it's it's not always entirely clear to the person um, if everything's okay or not, or to the company as well. Um, once the information is provided to FDNS and they've gathered what they've gathered, then they close the they close the work on their end. But then their report is then moved forward internally within USCIS, and USCIS will then either issue a notice of intent to revoke the the already approved case or nothing will happen. And like Kevin said, because it could take months for that notice of intent to revoke to appear, it really is a waiting game. And it's true, no news is good news in that sense. On the flip side, if it's a pre-adjudication start visit, you should have an answer because you should either get an approval, a request for evidence, or you know, a notice of intent to deny or something along those lines. Um, and it's also important to keep in mind that that the FDNS officers, once you've given them the information they need, they consider it complete on their end, but that is not the end of the story, okay? It still moves forward internally within USCIS. Also, what's important to remember is that even though these are all separate agencies that we're talking about, FDNS, ICE, DOL, they do partner with each other to share information. So just because nothing happens with that site visit, it's possible that information could go elsewhere. Uh, for example, USCIS has formed a partnership with ICE in which FDNS pursues administrative inquiries into most uh, application and, and petition fraud, while ICE conducts criminal investigations into major fraud conspiracies. So something to keep in mind, if a company is consistently being subjected to site visits, it could be that they are under investigation and it's maybe not that random site check. Uh, so this would be important for, you know, in this situation for the employer to look for assistance from qualified immigration attorneys to review their site visit history and get assistance in responding to, to future inquiries. Sounds good. So that's when they would contact the Alyssa Klein 
for example, at the multi law firm or whoever at other firms, if you're working with that has an attorney exactly. whose main focus is on, on this type of work as opposed to trying to do a jack of all trades to be a master of something. Okay, thank you, Alyssa. So this, I know we focus a lot on FDMS and ICE, but you know the other type of investigation that often comes up, of course, as some of you may be familiar with, is with the U.S. Department of Labor because their primary focus is wage and hour issues, where they play, DOL plays a very large role, especially with respect to H-1B compliance, because these cases require the labor condition application or LCA, not the labor certification, but the LCAs that are filed with H-1B petitions, So, which means that they, the Department of Labor has additional compliance requirements regarding you as an employer having to maintain the public access file or the pay, PAFs, as we refer to them, showing payment of wages to H-1 workers. How do you come up with the actual wage and the prevailing wage, et cetera, and attest that there has been non-displacement of U.S. workers when going through the H-1B process. So don't forget about DOL in all of this. So when we talk of non-displacement of U.S. workers, I know there's always, like, what does that really mean? So, Kevin, what does that really mean when an employer, when there's the term, non-displacement of U.S. workers? Yeah, I don't think the government even knows, but I think what they're going based on is, uh, you know, Department of Labor has this um, mandate to protect U.S. workers from being uh, displaced or replaced by a um, uh, foreign national workers, basically like uh, with uh, who, who would take lower wages. Um, the, the, the best example, the famous or maybe infamous example is, uh, the Disney case from a few years, uh, I guess many years ago now, where Disney had uh, software employees and had H-1 workers that were contracted come in and train those, uh, and they were being trained by the software developer employees, and then the software developer employees were eventually replaced by the H-1 workers. And uh, the H-1 workers were not working directly for Disney, I think. It was a uh, contract relationship. But that's the kind of thing that... Um, you know, it's very politically charged. You know, it seems like kind of like a loophole situation. I think that's one of the reasons why we see contract uh, work have, be subject to more scrutiny than, you know, direct employment. So all of this revolves around this idea of not replacing U.S. workers with foreign national work. The, the whole point um, and what we see largely is that immigration workforce augments U.S. workforce, and, and, um, and we want to make sure as a, as a legal policy that it's not being replaced. Makes perfect sense, and that's actually, like you pointed out, the main task of the U.S. Department of Labor, which is to protect U.S. workers, uh, U.S. citizens, lawful permanent residents, and others who have valid employment authorization documents, etc. So, okay, so one of the questions we get asked all the time, again, is, how does the Department of Labor even start or come to investigate the H-1B employer and whether they're compliant? What, does it, what is it triggered by and what, how does this happen and what's the process? So, Alyssa, as a resident in-house person at the Murthy Law Firm, how does this all get triggered and what can the employer and employee do? So, usually it's triggered when an employee or perhaps a former employee of a company uh, submits a wage and hour complaint to the Department of Labor, and the Department of Labor is obligated to investigate these. So if, if such a thing happens and then the DOL shows up at the employer's location, they can request public access files 
which by regulation the employer has to produce within three days of the request. Just like with FDNS, though, it's always better to be prepared, right? So we do recommend that employers have a protocol for receiving the Department of Labor agent. First, have a designated uh, representative or personnel for the first point of contact uh, to reach out to within the company. Uh, make sure you understand what is required and not required to provide. Again, you have a few days to produce the public access files, so you don't have to pr produce anything on the day of the visit. Also, you're, an employer is not required to produce internal material such as their own internal self-audits of their files or attorney-client privilege communications or material. Uh, usually the DOL would leave the employer with a specific list of items, including a time frame for the public access files that they want to review, such as all public access files from date X to X. Uh, so sometimes the, the Department of Labor may want to focus solely on you know, one or maybe just a few people or a few public access files, they, they certainly can request a broader amount of records as well. Thank you, Alyssa. I mean, so it really shows you that you know, it gets triggered, but here they go through all these hoops. And I know a lot of employers, when I've done consultations, will say, well, I have nothing to hide. I say, please come in, sit down. I have everything here. Look at it right now. Uh, if you want to look at it, they don't even ask or talk to their lawyer or an outside person that focuses in this area because they feel I have nothing to hide. Well, that's probably true, and hopefully nobody has anything to hide, but it's always better to be safe than to be sorry. It's always better to be extra diligent and careful. Know what your rights are under the law. Know if you have, if you're entitled to three days, as Alyssa just pointed out, that we take advantage of the full three days to make sure that everything is proper and in order. And so the, to answer the question of how should the employer handle a request for public access files, to, this is going to depend on how large of the request that is being made by the U.S. Department of Labor. If you, as an employer, if the files have been internally audited on a regular basis and are being appropriately and properly maintained, then obviously this will greatly help the employer, uh, the company, to comply with the Department of Labor's request to provide everything within the three-day time frame. As the employer, as a company, as a business, you can always go back to the Department of Labor and request an extension of the three-day timeline required under the regulations. And I think it's always a wise idea for employers and businesses and even individuals, for that matter, to consider involving the company attorney or an outside attorney before making any documents or information like the public access files available to any federal government agency. So let me now next jump to you, uh, Kevin. What happens once the DOL completes, does review the requested documentation? Sure. So, you know, the the documentation that's submitted to DOL, depending on what they ask for, I mean, it could be a lot of stuff, and it might it might take a long time. You know, when we work on these uh, cases, you know, it could be it could be months sometimes before DOL gets back, because what they're doing is, you know, they're looking for uh, if there's any fines for violations that they can assess. They're doing back wage analysis to make sure that uh, uh, to confirm whether there's any back wage liability. You know, prevailing wage was 100,000, but it looks like they only paid 80, 20,000 back wage, something like that kind of calculation um, during the investigative period uh, we were talking about earlier. 
Um, so they're, they're going to add all of this up. If they, if they see a pattern or practice of consistent violations, it could impact the amount of the fines. There could be greater fines. And it could also result, you know, worst case scenario, you, the Department of Labor determines that the company can no longer participate in the H-1B program. And this is uh, called debarment. And usually it's, um, I think the initial one, Alyssa, is it like a one or two year when they, if there's a debarment finding, and then there could be more after that? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the um, they could certainly be debarred for at least a year, um, and not only from the H-1B program, potentially also from PERM. Right, right, the PERM, yeah, because DOL does PERM and the LCAs, right, that's a good point. So, uh, you know, debarment is a huge consequence if you're reliant on, um, you know, H-1 works staff to drive your business. Uh, now, if, if the company doesn't agree with the, the, the decision, that's not it. It's not f- completely final. It can be appealed. Um, sometimes the employers, and, you know, we've worked on cases like this where we can negotiate with Department of Labor to, uh, you know, reduce the fines, to reduce the back wage liability, uh, perhaps to, if there's a, de- you know, a, a, a desire to f- make a debarment finding to try and reduce that or eliminate it. So there is a negotiation strategy involved even after the findings. Um, so, yeah, like, like Sheila was saying, it's kind of important to have an, an attorney involved in this entire process looking at the documents before they're submitted and negotiating the findings after they come back. Thank you so much, Kevin. I know we always try to be vigilant about trying to have these teleconferences between 30 to 45 minutes, and I think we're just past the 30-minute mark, so we're doing great. But, Alyssa, I'm going to invite you to just share what are the current trends, what's happening right now in today's environment, what are you seeing as you do this kind of work, which is, your, which is a big part of the focus of your work at the Murthy Law Firm. Sure. So initially during the pandemic, you know, we were not seeing a lot of site visits, um, but they definitely are happening again, and and we're definitely seeing them pick up. Like Kevin said earlier, you're not necessarily getting as many in-person spontaneous site visits. We're seeing a lot of phone interviews, uh, emails, and in some occasions, you know, they will still try to arrange to visit with the person at the you know work site if it is safe and feasible okay so the officer could reach out to the employee uh, verify their work location and and make arrangements to meet with them face to face okay uh, the other thing that FDNS may do is they could ask for photos uh, if the workers from home of their home work location in, in lieu of visiting or accepting uh, pictures from the traditional office location which you know brings brings us to an important point which is the fact that so many people have started working from home. And while somebody can relocate within the metro statistical area or within commutable, commutable distance of a work location on an LCA associated with approved H-1B petition, if they relocate outside of that geog- geographical area, the employer does need to file an amendment before the person starts working from the, from the new location. And then I just wanted to touch on uh, something that you had mentioned at the very beginning. This is not directly related to the compliance areas that we're talking about, but it was the uh, uh, software program within FDNS that's basically being used to essentially do background checks or to to track immigrants and naturalized citizens. Um, We're seeing some information about that, you know, in articles, uh, but 
you know, so it's just something to, to bear in mind. We don't have a lot of details at this point, um, but we do know that it, this is happening in the background, that they are monitoring immigrants and naturalized citizens. Uh, so this potentially could be an issue for people who, who are already here you know, legally with citizenship even. That sounds really scary and a little perturbing to think that they're going after, especially if, you know, because initially during the pandemic, a lot of employers and employees weren't sure. We all thought this was an initial two-week time frame that we were going to work from home. And now a year and a half later, we realize, and every two weeks, we were told two more weeks. So employers may not have filed the H-1 amendment if it was a different work location because you weren't going to ask the employee to travel when the whole world was shut down and hold the United States was shut down. So uh, it, this is one of those that at some point you're saying the employer really should have filed an H-1 amendment in order to be consistent because if it's not mentioned, if it's not work within the same MSA, um, then it, is, it could pose to be a problem because it's a violation of the LCA and the H-1B petition. Huh, um, Alyssa? Exactly, exactly. Got it, got it. Okay, so just on behalf of Alyssa Klein and Kevin Andrews and myself, Sheila Muthi, we really want to stress the importance of understanding the climate, understanding what is going on, sharing the latest trends with you as employers and employees. You, it is important for you all to understand how to deal with the different federal agencies, whether it's FDNS, ICE, or Department of Labor, and how to deal with the aftermath of a site visit or investigation. So obviously, as we have pointed out in the last 30 to 45 minutes, is the best thing that you all can do, whether employer or employee, is to be prepared in every which way, have a plan of action, self-audit your files, have standard operating procedures in place for when these areas of, for these areas of compliance, make sure that your staff is trained, uh, who is going to be responsible for managing these areas, expect employees, tell them what the process is within the company, et cetera, and when required, always, Remember the importance of bringing in experienced, knowledgeable, and qualified uh, counsel or attorneys earlier rather than later in the process. So, again, on behalf of all of us, Alyssa Klein, Kevin Andrews, and myself, Sheila Muthi, and all of us at the Muthi Law Firm, we want to thank you for joining us for today's teleconference. We certainly look forward to continuing to take good care of you and to support you with our fantastic team here at the Muthi Law Firm in the United States, in Owings Mills, on the East Coast, in Seattle, Washington, on the West Coast, and of course, with our three liaison offices in India, in Chennai, Hyderabad, and Mumbai, for anybody that may be stuck or having visa-related issues abroad to work with the MultiIndia.com team. Thank you very much. Stay safe, stay healthy, and hopefully we can look at the pandemic in our rearview mirror in the not-too-distant future. Take care and have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.